Hello, welcome to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class that I teach at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, and it's designed to make theology more accessible for people who don't feel like they want to try to get a PhD in theology. Uh, this is week two, where we're going to be talking about the Trinity, and unfortunately, when I taught the class, someone, that someone being me, did not press record on the podcasting equipment, so I totally lost the class, which is unfortunate because it was a lot of fun. We had a really, really good session, lots of great questions being asked by the class and stuff like that, so uh, I'm re-recording this for the benefit of the podcasting audience. Uh, I apologize for having lost all of those questions, but I'm going to do my best to incorporate as many of them as possible into this recording. If you do have further questions, uh, things that we covered that you didn't hear addressed, uh, you can contact me through Facebook at facebook.com slash jrforesteros. Reach out to me on Twitter at jrforesteros, uh, or you can also check out my blog, jrforesteros.com. Uh, there are plenty of good ways there to, to get in touch with me. And you can also listen to some of the other podcasts I do, like my Sermon Podcast, the World Religions Podcast, or the Storyman Podcast that I co-host with Matt Michelottos and Clay Morgan at storyman.us. So however you want to engage with that, you're also free, hopefully, just to listen to this uh, hour or so that we talk about the Trinity. I'm really excited about this week, and one of the main reasons I'm re-recording it instead of just letting it be lost is because the Trinity is my favorite Christian doctrine. It's, it's one of the core uh, foundational beliefs of the church, and uh, really it's the, it's the doctrine, it's the theological belief that everything else we're going to be talking about for the rest of this class springs from. So uh, it just wouldn't be the same if we didn't have uh, some time to talk about the Trinity together. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Uh, if you listen last week, you know we started by talking about what it means to do theology and how everyone talks about God, whether they're a professional theologian or not. And so our question isn't necessarily whether or not we've ever done theology, but how we do theology well, how we talk about God in ways that are helpful, in ways that are uh, healthy. And the way that we in the Wesleyan holiness theological tradition that the Nazarene Church is a part of uh, guide our theological conversation is through something we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And so there are basically four sources of theology that we use. And again, we talked about all of this last week, so it should sound somewhat familiar. Uh, first, we use the scriptures. We believe that the scriptures are sort of our foundation for all of the words that we use to talk about God. And so we talked a lot last week about what the scriptures are and where they come from and how we use them. Second is the tra our tradition, which is basically the whole history of the church, not just of the Nazarene church, but of the whole Christian church going back 2,000 years. Uh, and then the, the tradition of the people of God, even going back further than that, uh, before Jesus' time. Third, we use reason, uh, our own cognitive abilities. Uh, the theology that we do needs to make sense. It needs to be something that's logically coherent. It can't be full of self-contradictions and things like that. Or it's just not going to feel compelling. It's not going to feel coherent. And we have room for mystery, of course, in our theology. But but there, the, it, it, at, the, at the core, it does need to hold together in some kind of coherent worldview. And then finally, experience. Uh, not only our own personal religious experiences, but also uh, what we mean by experience is that we believe that God is living and active and at work in the world and in places that we would have not necessarily thought to look for him. And so uh, we believe that, that God is beyond our theology, and we're going to be talking more about that uh, later in this, in this class. And and really, in this particular day, when we're talking about the Trinity, you're going to see all of these 
parts of the Wesleyan quadrilateral coming to bear on how the church developed and cultivated and nurtures today its doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, because the, the thing that you probably will be surprised about right from the, the get-go is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the scriptures. Uh, you get hints and whispers of it uh, here and there, but there is no place in the scriptures that gives us a fully fleshed out doctrine of the Trinity as the church now talks about and expresses and even as you find in some of the creeds like the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, which we'll look at a little bit later. So the question that I want to start with is, is as we begin with the story of God and the scriptures with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, as we talked about last week, then we want to ask, well, what kind of God and what who do the scriptures reveal God to be? And if the Trinity is not explicitly outlined in the scriptures, how did we get that idea? And so what we're going to see as we look through, uh, we're going to take kind of a whirlwind tour through biblical history at who God is and at how God works in human history. Uh, and we'll see that that even though we don't have a clearly fully fleshed out doctrine of the Trinity in the scriptures, we have a movement forward of God continuing to reveal more and more of himself to humanity. And that the, the further we move forward in human history, the better and better picture we get of God until we get into uh, the, the most full and robust picture of God uh, in the Trinity. And this really matters because the Trinity is what sets the church apart from any other religion. I mean, the, there, are, there are lots of other doctrines that we share in common with various other religions. You know, like God's sovereignty is something that both the Jewish people and the Muslim people affirm, right? Uh, God's love for creation is something that tons of religions affirm, you know, from, from Hinduism and Buddhism and all of that. Um, and so uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is the one distinct doctrine that no other religion talks about God the way we talk about God in this particular way that God is triune. And so it really, really matters when we're trying to understand what makes us Christian and not anything else. And, and why is it, why is it, why does it matter that our understanding of God is, is what it is and not something else? We'll, we'll see all that in a little bit. So the first place that I really want to go is to Abraham, who who first comes onto the scene in Genesis 12. So we're talking very early, but you know Genesis 12 is really where the Bible enters into recorded history. Before Genesis 12, you know, hundreds and thousands of years are passing in a very quick, uh, a very quick you know manner, and 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 you know God's in there or not in there, uh, interacting with humanity or distant from humanity, um, and you know lots of humans know who God is. Very few know who God is. Just kind of back and forth uh, until we get to the Tower of Babel, and then humanity is scattered and their languages are divided and all of that and and then with Genesis 12 is where everything sort of enters into uh, what we recognize as recorded history and we have you know this person named Abraham who's living in what is modern day Iraq and Abraham we don't have any indication that he was anything just but another human living in this in this region just like the you know dozens of other people living in this region at the time and uh our best understanding of who Abraham is is that he was probably a polytheist just like everyone else. And the thing about the way that the polytheistic worldview functioned, particularly in Abraham's time, was that there was no chief god or most important god or a creator god that rules over everyone else. Every every clan, every family, every tribe sort of had their own patron deity that they paid their respects to and that they worshipped, but it was it was understood that those deities were very territorial and very tribal, just like the clans. So you would have your 
tribal deity, but then when you would go to visit someone else, you would not only bring along your own sort of personal idol that you would continue to worship, but you would also worship their god because you're in their home. Uh, and so it was it was considered polite and it was considered good manners and it was considered good neighborliness that you would participate in worship of these other people's gods when you were there. And that's how Abraham would have seen the world, right? That there's just all these different gods and there's not one that's more right or more powerful or anything like that. And, and so what happens is Abraham, again, we just, he just comes onto the scene, sort of shows up. There's a guy named Abraham, lives in the land of Ur, and a god identifies himself and says, hey, Abraham, I want you to come with me and I'm going to settle you in this new land and I'm going to make you prosperous. And Abraham says, okay. And it'd be nice if we knew a little bit more about why he does that, uh, but, but we just don't. And so the way this God is identified from there on out is the God of Abraham. And then later, after Abraham has a son who worships him, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And then after Isaac has a son, it's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so that's, that's really just how uh, Abraham saw the world, how he would have understood what was going on, that there was a, a one God of all of the many different gods that the people in his time worshipped who approached him and formed this particular relationship with him. Uh, that was it. Now, I want to fast forward a few hundred years. What happens is Abraham's uh, great-grandchildren end up having to go to Egypt because there's basically a famine and Egypt's the only place in the world that has bread. And they end up settling there. And so uh, before too long, uh, uh, a different ethnic group comes to power in Egypt and they don't know, uh, they don't know Abraham's descendants. They don't know Joseph, who's Abraham's great-grandson or any of the people. And so they enslave all of Abraham's descendants who are now called the nation of Israel. And so they're in slavery for a couple of hundred years. And then one day there's a guy uh, who is born, uh, he's one of Abraham's descendants named Moses, and he, uh, a bunch of stuff happens, you can read about it in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, but he ends up on the run. He murders an Egyptian guy and ends up on the run. He ends up out in, in a foreign country named Midian, and his father is a priest of Midian. So that means, again, he's like the local priest for the gods that his clan, the Midianites, worshipped. And Moses marries his daughter, and so he's living in Midian, probably worshipping uh, his father-in-law Jethro's gods and all that stuff. And then Moses tends Jethro's uh, herds, his flocks of sheep or, you know, whatever whatever kind of, uh, of, of animals he raised. And so I'm going to read with you from Exodus chapter 3, because this is a new moment in the history of God and God's people. And so I want to, I want to read with you what happens here, beginning in verse 1. The scriptures tell us that one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Now Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. And like many of us would, he says, this is amazing. I need to go check this out. Why is it burning up? So Moses goes over to it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the burning bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replies. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father. Now listen to how God identifies himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Right? Okay? Now when Moses hears this, he covers his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now what we don't see here is that Moses is, uh, and all of all of these people, they, they don't actually have a name 
for Abraham's God. At all up until this point, God has always been identifying himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, that of Jacob. And God, just like it is in our language today, right? God is a generic three-letter word that can be pretty much anything. Like the word guy, like I'm a guy, right? Another three-letter word that can mean about anything. There's lots of different guys out there. Well, and that's how Moses would have seen the world. Like he was raised in the Egyptian uh, royalty. And so he knew all of these other Egyptian gods. And so when God goes to identify himself to Moses, he identifies himself. He says, I'm, I'm a particular God. I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So he's, he's trying to be specific. But look at what happens. Now, now God goes on uh, in verse 7 and following to say, you know, I've seen the, what's going on with my people and I want to get them out of Egypt. You've seen the Charlton Heston movie, you know, uh, you know kind of what's, what's about to happen, right? But down in verse 11, Moses protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people out of Egypt? And God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But, Moses protested, if I go to Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? And then what should I tell them? See, Moses and no one, no one knew this God's name. No one knew his particular identity in history. And so this, uh, in, in verse 14 here, is a huge pivotal moment in world history, in the history of world religions. God replied to Moses, I am who I am, which in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's written as four consonants, Y-H-W-H, we say Yahweh. Say this to the people of Israel, I am, the divine name, right, Yahweh, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, I am, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Because so here for the first time, Moses has been given God's specific name. He's gone from just being the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to to Yahweh. Now, there's a couple things I, w- I want to kind of take a detour before we come back to the theological conversation and talk about the divine name. Uh, typically in our English Bibles, it's not written as Yahweh. In fact, it's, it's never you never see it as Yahweh in most translations. And that's because uh, and in the Ten Commandments, which, you know, after Moses gets them out of Egypt, they go back to this Mount Sinai and they get the Ten Commandments. And the third one is don't take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, the Lord your God in vain. And so the Jewish people took this very seriously and they would never pronounce the divine name. In fact, if you know any Jewish people today, if you have Jewish friends, you'll see that they even write the word God, G hyphen D. That's just a way for them to remember never to misuse God's name. Uh, so what they would do is instead of saying Yahweh, they would say the word Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. So they would call they would call Yahweh Lord instead of calling him Yahweh. So that way they never they never accidentally misused his name. If you never use his name at all, you can't accidentally misuse it. That's how seriously uh, they took the third commandment. So in our English translations, you'll often see this fact if you open up a Bible, uh, if you happen to have one around you right now, or do it do it next time you're around a Bible, you'll see. All through the Old Testament, but you can even read it in Exodus 3 that we were just reading together. You can go to Exodus 20 and read through the Ten Commandments. You'll see the word LORD, and it'll be written in all capital letters. Um, and anytime you see that in an English translation, that's actually the word Yahweh. In, in, the, in the original Hebrew, it's the Y-H-W-H. It's the divine name. So, for instance, in the first commandment, God says, I am the, your English translation says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, you should have no other gods before me. And what it actually says in Hebrew is, I am Yahweh, your God. He's being very specific about his name. I am I am Yahweh, your God. You should not worship any other gods. Right? Um, and so, 
Now, what's funny about that? Again, this is a little a little extra history for you that it, if you don't like history, you can just fast forward through this part. But uh, many of you have probably heard the word Jehovah used as a name for God, and it's not actually a name for God. So here's what happened: uh, the original Hebrew language was always written only with consonants in all of their letters. And I know that sounds like it's really hard to read, but it's it's not actually that bad. If you go uh, get out a pen and paper and just write down a sentence, whatever sentence you want, you can just say like, "I'm going to go to the grocery store." And if you write it out, write it in all capital letters, and don't write any con- any vowels in there. Only write with consonants. Uh, you'll be able to figure out what the sentence is pretty easily. Uh, It takes a little bit of work, but especially if you do it for a couple of minutes, I don't know why you would, where you would find a book that does that, but if you did that, uh, it's actually pretty easy to read. And so this is how the ancient Hebrews would write, um, probably, you know, to conserve space because it was really expensive to write things back in those days. So the divine name was always written Y-H-W-H. Well, several, uh, you know, like a thousand years later or something like that, another group of Hebrew scholars decided they wanted to put the vowels in there because it's just easier to read with vowels. Like we use vowels all the time because it's easy. It's just easier. And so as a way to remember that they should never pronounce the divine name, they should never say Yahweh, they wrote the vowels for Adonai, which is, again, the Hebrew word for Lord, which is what they would say instead, right? So they had the consonants for Yahweh but the vowels for Adonai. And when you write that together, you get Y-A-H-O-V-A-H. And because they were Germans, they used J's instead of Y's, because that's what Germans do. And so they had Jehovah. And that, that, it was what, what, that was because the first, those early translators didn't know that this is what, this is how Hebrew people, Hebrew scribes were cueing themselves not to say Yahweh, but instead to say Adonai. So they, they didn't understand that this was not a word. It was a, an amalgam, a mixture of two different words. It was Yahweh and Adonai smashed together to get Yehovah. And so instead, uh, they, they said Jehovah is the name of God, and we've been using that incorrectly ever since. So the next time you have a Jehovah's Witness come over and say, don't you think if God had a, a name, you would want to know it? You can say, sure, I think that's important, because obviously God thought it was important. And then they say, well, it's Jehovah, and you can smile at them and explain to them that it's not. And maybe, you know, be nice, offer them a glass of lemonade or something. But uh, <clears throat> there's a little there's a little fun history language tidbit for you about the name of God. So Yahweh... Let's go back to Mount, back to Mount Sinai. Yahweh is God's name. What makes what makes Exodus uh, not just Exodus three, but all the way through until the Israelites get out of Egypt so fascinating is a shift, and it's a it's hard for us to see because we live in a, a monotheistic culture. We've been monotheistic for a thousand years, uh, three thousand years, whatever, a long, long, long time. Uh, it's hard for us to see what a huge shift this is because no God in a polytheistic culture would ever go to another God's country and tell them what to do, right? That was just considered like, 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 uh, I mean, no, no one would come into your house and redecorate it without your permission because it's your house, right? That was sort of the idea. It's like, like stay in your own place, God. So for Yahweh to say, I'm going to send you into Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh what this outsider God wants to do with his people. Like this just wasn't, it just wasn't done. But what we see, not only in Exodus 3, but also through the plagues, and I wish we had more time to do this, but we don't, uh, is that each of the ten plagues is a direct attack on one of the Egyptian gods. So what God is actually, what Yahweh, what God uh, is actually doing here is making a claim to being more than just one deity in the mix of a bunch of other ones. Yahweh is actually claiming that he is the chief deity. 
And, and we see this after Israel gets out of Egypt. When they go back to Sinai, they receive the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and all of that. And so you can see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, this, is, uh, this is a prayer called the Shema that uh, Jewish people today still say every day. Uh, it's something Jesus quotes as the greatest commandment. And, and, and many of you, if, if you're familiar with any scriptures, you've probably heard this before. But this is what God says. He says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, uh, the Lord alone, is, is the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. Uh, now, some more traditional translations that kind of stick to some of the, the ways Jewish people prayed in English. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so there's this idea of divine oneness, that God is the only God, the, the singular God, um, are pretty pretty big. And what we really see Moses transitioning us to here, what we see God revealing to Moses and Moses shifting from the poly, you know the kind of more polytheistic religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to a more clear, uh, it's not quite monotheism, but it, it's what's what's called henotheism. And uh, one of my favorite scholars, Greg Boyd, actually, actually calls this creational henotheism. Because henotheism is a term, it's like polytheism, but instead of it just being a bunch of different gods that are all more or less equal and sort of territorial, henotheism is that there's one god who is the chief god. So you see this in like uh, Greek and Roman polytheism where they have Zeus or Jupiter or something like that. And we see this, this is sort of what we're seeing in Israel, where we're saying, okay, there might be all of these other gods, like the Egyptian gods or the Midianite gods or, or whatever, but Yahweh is, is the only God Israel worships no matter what, and Yahweh is, is the creator of all of these other gods. That's a huge, that's a huge movement forward for Israelite religion. Uh, and and, and w let's be really clear, because I know this can get confusing. It can sound like we're saying that uh, that God is evolving or that God is changing or that God is maybe like this, you know, upstart little deity that takes over everything, kicks over all the other gods out, like does the smear campaign that he's the only one or something like that. But a more proper way to understand this is that God is meeting humanity where they are, right? Abraham was born and raised in a polytheistic culture and God met him there. And, and Abraham understood as much of God as he was ready to understand. And God revealed himself to Abraham and called Abraham forward. And now we're seeing with Moses another huge movement forward in, in how Israelites understood God. Not in who God is, but in how humanity understood who God is. And again, the good news about that is that God is meeting us where we are. That even though God is completely beyond us, and we'll, we'll get to this later as well, God meets us where we are and God gives us grace uh, to understand as much of him as we are able to understand. So, uh, after Sinai, you know, you have the you have the ongoing development of Israelite religion. And you can see as you trace it through the scriptures, as the texts get later and later and later, you can see this clear movement towards monotheism. So by the time you get to Isaiah 43, which was written, uh, you know, a thousand years or so after Moses, give or take, right? I mean, getting at least getting towards a thousand years. Uh, Isaiah says, before, this is God speaking, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So you have a clear statement of, of exclusive monotheism. There is no other God that was created before Yahweh, and there are no other gods after Yahweh. Yahweh is the only God. So there's this clear, strict monotheism that, that really is what we have by the time Jesus gets on the scene, right? That the Jews believe there's only one God, and that God's name is Yahweh. The problem is, we get this guy named Jesus who shows up, and he walks around saying all kinds of crazy stuff. So, uh, there's a, the, in, in John chapter 8, 
Jesus is arguing with some people, and he's talking about Abraham. And he, he talks about some things that Abraham believed. And then in, in verse 57, the people said, well, come on, man, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? And then in, in verse 58, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, that's not a misspeak. It's not a typo. He didn't stutter. He very intentionally used God's divine name because he's claiming to be God. And we know that we know that everyone understood this because immediately after this, they tried to stone him to death for being a blasphemer, which is what the, the Torah said to do. When someone blasphemes, then you stone them to death. And they tried to do that with Jesus, but of course he got away. And so Jesus walks around claiming to be God. And, and his earliest followers believed that that was true. But how can that be? If God is one, if there's only one God, then how can this guy over here walking around claim to be God? That doesn't make any sense. And then it gets worse because Jesus begins to promise another person that he called the advocate or the Holy Spirit. So in John 16, this is uh, right before Jesus is about to be betrayed and then crucified. He's talking to his disciples kind of like one last time. They don't really get that it's his last time yet, but he understands that. And Jesus says it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sins and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So here Jesus is talking about this other person who's going to come and is acting just like God acts. And then we see through the rest of the New Testament, after Jesus leaves, there is this spirit, this Holy Spirit that comes upon the disciples and they experience him as God also. And so that, that, that creates some massive problems for those first followers of Jesus because they recognize that in some way all three of these persons are God. This God, you know, the Father, and then also Jesus, the Son, and then also this Spirit. But, but we didn't have a lot of clarity beyond that. And so that's what you see by the time the New Testament canon is closed. Uh, it, it, for instance, in Matthew 28, at the very end of his gospel, the last thing Jesus says is that I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and here you get it, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So we have some sense that all three of these persons are different, Father, Son, and Spirit, Yet, and yet they're all God. So the problem is, God is one. That's clear. That's such an old, ancient part of our tradition. And yet, God seems to be three. How can that be possible? What is going on here? And that's that's the conundrum that those first followers of Jesus faced, was this threeness and yet this oneness of God. Now, this, this points to a problem when we talk about God, because we, we, do have a, we do have a vague sense that somehow things can be three and also one. For instance, if you think, and this is this is a little bit silly, but think about an egg, right? You have you have three distinct parts of an egg: a shell, a yolk, and a white. And all three of them are instantly and immediately identifiable as egg, and yet they're all distinct. They're all different, and yet they're all one. They're all three, and they're all one. Now, I'm not saying that an egg is like a, tr- a trinity. Please don't quote me that the trinity is not like an egg, but but that does get us beginning the first steps down a road of thinking that things could be three and yet also one in some way. Our, our brains can begin to conceive of something like that. 
But the deeper problem, and this is a, this is a deeper problem for all of theology, is that talking about God is inherently limiting. So there are there are a couple songs I'd like to share with you uh, from from different Christians. One from the last century and one from this century. The first is a, is a, an old hymn called "The Love of God" uh, that was written by Frederick Lehman, and he says, "Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made?" Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Again, all of our words are inherently limiting. Uh, another band I really like called Me Without You has a song called The Dryness and the Rain. And there in that song, he says, A fish swims through the sea, while the sea is, in a certain sense, contained within the fish. Now, this is a, a common metaphor that you'll see uh, lots of theologians and thinkers use when they try to talk about our words about God. And they'll say, okay, so obviously it is it is right in some sense to say that the, that the ocean is inside the fish, right? That the ocean is in the fish because it's running all the way through the fish, Right? But it would be silly to say that the entire ocean is in the fish, because the fish is in the the entire fish is in the ocean. But the but the fish is this teeny, teeny, almost minuscule part of this seemingly infinite thing. So too are our words about God. Our words are these inherently limited, limiting, finite things that are true. They do contain truth about God. They are real. They are right. But God is infinitely bigger than any of our words about him. And, and we see this nowhere more clearly than when we try to talk about the Trinity. Because the church struggled for years, for hundreds of years, to figure out a safe way to talk about this God who is bigger than our words, who's bigger than our comprehension. It took the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, a long time to get hammered out. And there were lots of kind of false starts along the way. But eventually we got to a place where we talk about the Trinity as a safe way to talk about God. Trinity is a word that's at the boundaries of what our language can express. It, it, it expresses what is the most true about God in language we can comprehend, but it still stretches just beyond what our language can express. The reason Trinity is important is because it avoids some, some uh, dangerous pitfalls. On the one hand, we avoid things like modalism, which says, and, and you've heard probably, if you've ever talked about the Trinity, you've heard people try to talk, try to describe it this way. They say, for instance, take me. I'm a husband, and I am a son, and I am a pastor. And even though I am all three of these roles or these modes of a person, I'm still the same person. The problem with that is that's not what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. We're not saying that there's this one entity, Yahweh, who sometimes does father things and other times does son things and then other times does spirit things. Uh, that's they're, they're not different modes in which the same person operates. They're three different persons who are all still one uh, deity, one God. Uh, you also get into the problem of something that's called adoptionism, which is this idea that, that there's God the Father, but then there's Jesus who was a created being who got made to be God, right? He was like adopted into God's family. Uh, this is this is uh, similar. This is along the lines of our, our Muslim or our Mormon or our Jehovah's Witnesses friends. They believe there's only one God who is a singular being, not triune, but a singular being, and that Jesus... 
the Holy Spirit, any any anyone else are lesser created beings. But one of the things that the church affirms is that all three persons of the Trinity are co-equal, co-eternal, and all uncreated. None of them are begotten. None of them are made. They're all co-eternal and co-equal. And so um, we would look at we would look at statements like that and say, well, if if you claim that Jesus and God are not the same uh, entity, they're not the same being, they're not the same God then that's, that's not what the church believes. That's not what Christians believe. And, and we're going to see in a minute why that matters so much. Now, on the other side of the, uh, we avoid polytheism. And, and again, if you've ever had a conversation with a Muslim friend, we've really been talking about this side of this kind of stuff. This is where they try to, they try to get Christians. They say, you know, even, even your own scriptures say God is one. And yet you've got these three gods running around, right? The father, son, and the spirit. You've got this, you've got this, uh, this, tr- this, uh, trio of gods, and, and we say, no, 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 no. We are not polytheistic. We do not believe in three gods. We believe that these three persons are one God. And so we are different from our Hindu friends or our pagan or our New Age friends, many of whom have no problem talking about Jesus as God. They say, sure, I believe in lots of gods and there's plenty of room in my pantheon for Jesus. And so we would say, well, no, actually, we believe there's only one God and that Jesus is one of the persons of God. That's why I say Trinity is a safe way to talk about God. It's a way that that stretches the the limits of our language because it's still hard to imagine how three persons can be one God. And yet, uh, this is is important for us because it's expressing what is most true about God. And I want to talk in a minute about what is most true about God, but I'd like to encourage you, if you have some time right now, you can pause this and get on your, get on the internet, get on your phone, whatever, and, and look up the Athanasian Creed. Uh, this is a creed that was written in the late 400s, early 500s, and it's a great outworking of the church's doctrine of the Trinity. And you'll see it's really repetitive. It, sometimes it's a little easy to get lost in, but uh, but read through it a few times and you'll begin to see how important it was that the church have some really clear language about exactly who the Trinity is and exactly who the Trinity is not. And that's where you get these ideas that you know all three persons of the Trinity are equal, that there's no hierarchy within the Trinity at all, um, that they all three are mutually submitting to each other, uh, that they, uh, that they're co-equal and co-eternal and that they're uncreated. There's, you know, there's no begetting, no making among them. Uh, it's just really beautiful. So, so go check it out. It's the Athanasian Creed. Uh, you can find it on Wikipedia. You should be able to Google a copy of it really easy and just, just read it through a few times. I think you'll be really impressed by the depth of the language and by the amount of thought that went into it. And I understand that was a thing that it took several hundred years for us to, to be able to articulate that so clearly. So, what we, what we need to ask then is when we're talking about Trinity, what, what is it expressing about God? What's the most basically true thing about God? And when we, when we are in the scriptures in the New Testament, we see that to claim that God is Trinity is to claim that God is most basically loved. Because that's something that the New Testament is very clear about. So in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, uh, the author says, God is love. And God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Okay, now, when you say God is love and you say it to a room, uh, a big enough room full of people, some people are going to get cranky because love is a word that's a lot like the word God, actually. It's fairly 
easy to, um, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I, you know, I love my wife. I love my church. I love podcasting. I love Batman. I love pizza. I love coffee. I love the Steelers. Hopefully, but not, hopefully not all of those things in the exactly the same way, right? Love can mean a lot of different things. And so some people, when they hear us say God is love, they imagine that sort of like cheap, shallow, infatuation kind of love that's fun, but it's not particularly deep. And that's not what we mean. Fortunately, the same author who wrote the epistle, uh, the letter of 1 John that we just read from, also wrote the Gospel of John, the story about Jesus. And there, uh, he has Jesus himself defining exactly what he means when he talks about love. So in John 15, Jesus says, There is no greater love. The, the, the purest, the most beautiful expression of love that you can find is to lay down one's life for one's friends, right? The most, the most perfect, pure expression of love is the giving up of yourself for the good of someone else, laying down even your very life for your friends. And that's what First John said, right? The reason we know God loves us is because God sent his son to die for our sins. So, so what the scriptures teach us is that God is most basically this self-giving. God is most fully God when God is giving God's self to someone else. And I think this is really why John 3.16 is the most popular verse ever, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? That whoever would believe would have eternal life. Uh, so this is actually really important, this idea that the Trinity is most, uh, that, that that's what the Trinity is if you've ever looked up, if you've ever, you've, you've probably, even if you don't know it, seen uh, visual representations of the Trinity. And again, next time you're on the internet, go just Google image search Trinity, but you'll see that kind of a uh, clover pattern where it's an, it's a, it's a never ending looping, you know, three part thing. And sometimes it's got a circle in the middle of it, but it, it symbolizes that these three are also one and that you can't distinguish uh, fully among them because they're all one. And the, the, the reason this is so important uh, for instance, let's talk about the doctrine of creation, right? Now, if God is most basically self-giving, if God is most fully God when God is giving, which the scriptures affirm, but God is only one, like say like our Muslim friends or our Mormon friends or our Jehovah's Witness friends believe, right? Then that means that God uh, cannot be fully God's self when it's just God. So, you know, rewind the clock all the way back to before there was anything, but when it was just God and there were no other gods, there was no creation, there was no nothing. That means God cannot fully be who he wants to be because in order to give, you have to be able to have, someone has to receive it, right? Otherwise you're just like throwing stuff. You're not giving it to anyone. You're just like dropping it, right? To give requires a receiver, which means if God is one, then God needs something to give to. So that means that God must create, God is obligated to create if God really wants to be fully who God is. But that means that creation is not, it's not an act of divine freedom. It's an act of divine obligation. And that means that the creation is obligated to receive what God is giving. God, creation is obligated to participate in what God is doing. Otherwise, creation is now at odds with God. And God, God's going to, that's where you get, you know, the angry, wrathful, judgeful kind of like, um, deity because, because creation isn't giving God what God not only wants, but what God actually needs to be God's self. Now. I know this is all getting a little bit philosophical, but hang with me because it's about to get really cool and really practical. If God is Trinity, 
If there are three persons within one Godhead, then all three can constantly be giving to and receiving from the other two inside of themselves. So the Father is always giving himself to the Son and to the Spirit, and the Spirit is always giving himself to the Father and to the Son, and the Son is always giving himself to the Father and to the Spirit, and they're all receiving from each other constantly, and so they're perfectly, wholly self-contained inside of the Trinity. They don't need anything else. If it's just God and nothing else, then God can still fully be who God is. And that means that creation is an act of divine freedom, an act of divine joy. It's an act of wanting to wanting more people to not only give to, but to receive, right? Uh, to receive, but then they, they can also participate in what you're doing because you know, right, the only thing better than giving someone you love a present is giving them two presents, right? When you see how happy one thing made them and you can double that happiness by giving them two things, that's a beautiful thing. That's why we have a, a, a verse in the scripture that says it's more blessed to give than to receive because we are created, and we're going to talk more about this next week when we get to the creation of humanity. We are created in the image of this triune God. We are created in the image of this God who is most fully self-giving. And so when we understand creation as an act of divine freedom, God didn't have to do it. God didn't feel obligated to do it. God chose out of freedom to do it. And if we choose not to participate with God, if we choose not to receive God's blessings as good gifts and then to give as a response to that, well, that doesn't injure God. That doesn't prevent God from being who God most fully is. It can sure grieve God and it can sure, uh, and it can sure hurt us, but God isn't prevented from being God by, by the created by the creature. Um, God is still fully and holy God. It also reframes how we look at divine punishment. Now, there's no question in the scriptures that God sometimes punishes humanity. But we can understand punishment in the context of divine love. How could a person who is most basically self-giving love ever punish? Well, if you're a parent, you know the answer to that. You punish your children because you love them, because they're making choices that aren't going to lead them down a good path, and you want to correct them. You want to straighten them out. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 12 frames divine punishment this way. It even says, be grateful when you're experiencing correction from God because parents only discipline children that they actually love. So your divine correction is actually proof of God's love for you and how God is calling you back to who you were created to be. This reframes how we look at justice. If you've ever studied any kind of you know law or stuff like that, you know there's a couple of different ways to understand justice. There's retributive justice, which is giving people what they deserve, right? As though there's some kind of cosmic scales and, you know, if you eye for an eye kind of it, right? Um, someone does something, there's a punishment, and they have to pay their time or whatever to even the, the scales of justice. That's retributive justice. You're giving people what they deserve, Okay. There's a different kind of justice that we see in the New Testament that we see from Jesus that's a restorative kind of justice where he says, look, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for people who persecute you. The idea behind re restorative justice is that you give people what they need to be healthy and flourishing. And so again, what we see when we understand God most most uh, perfectly as a divine love, as a trinity, is that God is, a, God is a, a, a being, an entity who most basically wants creation, wants all of creation, wants every person in creation to have a full and flourishing life like we were created to. And so divine justice looks like us giving people what they need to flourish. And we understand that not everyone needs the same things. And so we're not worried about things being fair, we're worried about things being whole and healthy.
And that's different. That's different from the way we usually think about stuff. But that's how the Trinity teaches us to think about justice. Now, if we really want to get down to brass tacks as we're closing out here, we say, so what? How does this, how does this really meet us on the ground? Well, again, we are created in God's image. And we're going to spend a lot more time on this as we move forward. But that means that if God is fundamentally communal, then we are fundamentally communal. If God is fundamentally relational, we are fundamentally relational. This is why Paul in Philippians chapter 2 uh, writes to us, and he uses another hymn like the one we saw in Colossians last week. But he, this again, this is one of the earliest songs that the church sang when it worshipped God, when it celebrated Jesus, when it was participating in the life of the Trinity. Paul said, don't only look out for your own interests, right? But take an interest in others too. That's that divine self-giving, right? Don't be selfish, be selfless. Then he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And he launches into this song. He says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore... God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Jesus' journey. Not just that the cross was his self-emptying, but, but how, uh, how humiliating would it be for, the, for an eternal, uncreated being to become a messy, smelly, crying baby? In the incarnation. And then again, if you've ever spent time in uh, an impoverished country, you know it's not glamorous, right? And Jesus was living in uh, in rather extreme poverty even for his day. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't like a fun, like a, a, like a road trip for him, right? He sacrificed and gave from the moment of his incarnation all the way through his life up to and including his death on the cross. But Paul says because of that, he is now glorified as the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's what we should be too. We should be living our lives in such a way that we're thinking about how we can give for the good of other people. We're asking, what does it look like for us to give in that way, for us to participate in the interior life of the Trinity in that way? Uh, a couple of quick notes on what this looks like specifically. Uh, marriage is divine oneness in Genesis chapter 2. It says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And that same one word there that's used is the one that's used to describe God in Deuteronomy. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So there's this there's this mystical idea, and again, we'll get to it eventually, that marriage, the, the marriage relationship, that those these two separate becoming one is somehow a mirror or a picture of the interior life of the Trinity. The church is the same way in that same going away speech. At the end of it, Jesus prays for his disciples. And so in John 17, 11, he says, Holy Father, protect them, protect your followers, your disciples, all of, all of those of us who've chosen to follow Jesus, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one the same way we are one. And so again, to live in the church, to participate in the life of the church is in some way meant to be a picture of the interior life of the Trinity, that we are giving ourselves to each other and uh, in, in, in receiving from each other the way God gives and receives inside of the Trinity. Uh, marriage or the church, it doesn't make any difference. These are both meant, supposed to be pictures of how God relates with himself and how we then relate with God and with each other. 
Now, I know that I know that that was a lot this week, but that's what it really comes down to. This is where the Trinity really makes a difference. That instead of piling things up for ourselves, instead of amassing and accumulating, we are giving ourselves away. We are serving other people around us. We are asking, how can we give ourselves to those around us? That's what that's what the Trinity looks like, and that's what it means for us to participate in the Trinity. And we're going to have to stop there for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, humanity and creation. So I hope you'll be back for that next week. Again, if you have any questions, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also uh, Facebook or tweet um, any of those ways you want to get a hold of me. Uh, Appreciate, again, you listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast. And uh, we will see you next week.